What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Ben, how are you, my friend? I'm going to need to start changing that intro now that we're doing these minisodes. Our listeners will have heard the first one of those. What did you do it on? I don't even know. Oh, I did it on Darkman. Oh, okay, cool. I got to listen to We should have covered that movie together, but... <laughs> Well, check out the Darkman episode, everybody. I will myself this weekend. Anyway, that's enough uh, dicking around. I'm doing okay. It's really hot in this room right now, and I can't have the fan going because of the recording. So, well, it's sort of like you're on. It's sort of like you're on Mars with no oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. For those of you who are listening to this show for the first time, Back to the Movies is a podcast where Ben and I. Go back to a certain year of cinema in this season of Back to the Movies. We're going back to the year 1990. And we kind of explore a very large handful of movies that came out that year. Sort of talk about what made them important to that year. What made them stand out amongst the crowd of movies. And sort of what makes them relate to the year as a whole. So the movie we're covering today is... Yes. I need you to get your ass to Mars because we're covering Total Recall. <laughs> That's right. We're covering Total Recall. This shit is going to Mars. So Ben picked this movie. I think it might be one of his favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I don't know. He seems very excited about it. I mean, it was a no brainer. When we started looking at the years that we were going to cover and we settled on 1990 for a lot of reasons, but mostly having to do with the fact that we were born that year, that it was the 30th anniversary, and not specifically on the caliber of the films made that year. Total Recall was one of the films that got me excited, that got me on board. When I was looking at the list, I'm like, oh shit, Total Recall came out in 1990? Hell yeah, let's do that. There you go. So this is a this is a big one. So, but this is the first time you've seen it, right? So... I definitely watched this movie on like TNT when I was like 11 years old or something because a good chunk of it was in my brain. And I was definitely like, oh yeah, I remember this scene. I remember this scene. And actually, I before even watching it, I had remembered parts of it because the movie is very strong and it burned itself into my brain even though I had this half-remembered version of watching it when I was very young. I still remembered, oh, shit, this is about to happen. This is about to happen. Like, the movie really leaves an impression. There's so many indelible scenes, like so many great, great scenes in this movie. Yeah, this was like the first sit down and watch the whole thing and truly understand it, but it was definitely in my brain somewhere. So, but why did you pick this movie? What makes it so special to you that we had to cover it? I was trying to think back to... The first time I would have seen this movie. And I honestly couldn't say. I came to movies pretty late. It wasn't until high school that I really like developed my cinephilia. Uh, because we just didn't watch a lot of movies as a family. We certainly didn't watch a lot of violent movies. R-rated movies. Schwarzenegger was not a household name. It's possible I may have, like you, seen some of the, this on TV. But I think more likely this one would have been in the rotation of the movies you got to watch in high school kind of yeah. films. The ones that my friends would have recommended, you know, maybe they had some cool parents or older brothers or sisters <laughs> who were, you know, had seen this movie and pass it on to them. 
So that's my best guess, but I honestly can't remember because sort of like it was for you, to me, this movie is just like a series of images that are seared into my brain. Right. Film moments. And how they fit together, the, the connective tissue just doesn't stick. So watching it, I still got this wonderful, joyous experience of like rediscovering parts of the movie that I had forgotten and how the movie fits together in ways that didn't track in my brain. And I just, I loved it. I loved it. I loved, love, love this movie. It works on so many levels. It is a stupid, gory, violent action movie. It's a really clever, logic-bending movie. It is a great sci-fi movie with a well-fleshed-out sci-fi world. There's so much to love. I just, I love it. Well, and it's also really, really horrifying on a level that (laughs) most movies don't achieve. Even movies that are trying to be horrifying come nowhere close to this one. This is one of the most fucked up movies I've ever seen. <laughs> At least on a... No, on any level. On any level. It's really disturbing. And I don't know. I want to figure out what it is about it. But it just rubs you in a way where you're like, oh, I feel terrible about all of this. <laughs> Talk, tell me more about this. Because this is a really interesting reaction. Do you mean the violence? Like, is the violence too upsetting? The violence is very upsetting. But also just the worthlessness of human life beyond just <laughs> violence. It's it's more just the brutality that people treat each other with. And Some the, of that social commentary that's there. Yeah, and just the the utter disrespect for other human beings mm-hmm. is pretty over the top in this movie in a way that just makes you feel kind of sick to your stomach. At least if you have a shred of empathy in your body. Some people probably watch this and just think it's fucking (laughs) awesome that people are getting blown away. But I'm watching it, and I'm not saying I'm Mother Teresa, but I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this is horrible. Look, it's skipping way ahead, but when when he puts (laughs) the, 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 the screw through the scientist's neck, I'm always like, what did that guy ever do to you? It's just, it's just, it's sickening. Now, let me ask, are you also, like, upset and horrified by the existential terror of the your entire life could be a dream part of it? No, that stuff doesn't bother me as much. I think that other movies have kind of taken that and done it better, namely, like, The Matrix. Here, it's kind of fun, but what really got me in this one was just the utter mistreatment of the Martian people and the hatred that all of the big bosses have for each other and for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like there's just so much vitriol in everyone and they just hate each other with a passion and they just fuck you. Like, it's just like, Oh, you people just are so acidic. And it's just, you don't really see that in a lot of movies. Like a lot of movies try to keep it light, keep it fun. Maybe there's one bad guy. That's a real asshole. But in this one, everyone is just terrible. Terrible. Are you including Arnie in that? I am. That's the coolest part of the movie is when he figures out that even he is an asshole. <laughs> it's amazing. That was Dude. my favorite thing is that he wasn't even who he, thought, who he thought it was. The dream stuff is cool. But when it turns out that he has tricked himself, it's like, wow, everyone is a piece of shit. Everyone is terrible. 
Hauser, Screen Arnold is so good. It's such a good performance. Yeah. It's just his bust, you know, it's just tits up yeah. on Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's so good. That's governor material. That's what I'm saying. That is a governor that you're looking at right there. That's giving ahead though. We should we should lay some groundwork. I clearly I'm really excited about watching this movie. I I mean I had I I just said it, but I'm gonna say it again. It had been a long time since I had watched this movie all the way through. I had so much fun watching it the entire time. I just had a blast. Okay, that's all I have to say. That's okay. why. I'm, that's why I'm. So <laughs> it made it up. sound like you were gonna go on with that. Yeah, I had a great time. I think it stands up there with his other two masterpiece satirical movies, um, RoboCop and uh, Starship Troopers. Like, it's on that level for sure. Totally. And by him, you mean Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven, the director. Yeah. But let's get into a little book report action. Yeah. Um, Ben's book report corner. The best segment of all time. We need a theme song for this. I have already talked to Andy about writing one. It's in the works. Oh, boy. Yes. Okay, great. So, yeah, this is based on a book, literally. So give us that book report. Total Recall is based on a story by Philip K. Dick, prolific American sci-fi author, highly adapted. A lot of his stuff gets put into movies, and a lot of iconic sci-fi movies are based on his work. Have you ever read anything by him? I haven't. The titles of all the books kind of scare the shit out of me, so I've stayed away. (laughs) That's really funny you say that. Philip K. Dick is on record saying that, one, he almost never writes his own titles, it's like some editor who writes it for him. And two, that's because he thinks he's really bad at coming up with titles. Mm. And of all of his stuff, I think only one really has a good title. Minority Report. Okay, that's the original title. Yeah, it wasn't that's like the, original title. the amazing <laughs> ways we can remember things that we've not done yet. Like, that's what all my <laughs> Philip K. Dick, I look at that and I'm like, I'm not reading that. So that's that's a good that's a good segue because Total Recall is based off a story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Dude, get a better editor for those titles. <laughs> Come on. Go figure why, you know, the Hollywood ad execs, why Carol Co. wasn't like, let's put that on a poster. No, I'm sorry. Total Recall sounds great. But just to run it down, so many great movies based off his stuff. You've got Minority Report, which you've already mentioned. Blade Runner, based off of um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which I read in high school. That was the first Philip K. Dick thing I ever read. You've got A Scanner Darkly, the Richard Linklater film. I really like that movie. It's got that really cool cell-shaded rotoscoping over all the live performances. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously you've got Total Recall here. There's some lesser adaptations as well, but he's just, he's hugely, hugely influential. But when he was a working writer, he didn't have that sway. Before his film started to get adapted to the screen, he was just another sci-fi author. And we can remember for you wholesale was not a particularly special story to him. It was something he wrote for a paycheck in a magazine. I think it was called like, fantasy and science fiction quarterly or something like that. And it's just crazy short story. It's about 20 pages long. I read it two days ago in, in like half an hour to give myself some context. And was it good? It's fine. It's fine. How many people get shot viciously? Nobody. (laughs) He supposedly killed a guy in the past. Basically the short story is like the first act of the movie when Quaid is still on earth, except 
without the Jason Bourne rediscovering he's a spy. Instead, it's more about repressed memories. I think it might be setting itself up as a metaphor for suppressed trauma Mm. because they go to give him his Mars vacation, but it turns out he had already been there. He had already been a spy on Mars. And then they are going to kill him to cover that up. And instead he says, give me a different memory instead to replace it. Something even crazier. How about that? I saved the earth from aliens by befriending them. And they go to put that memory in his head. And it turns out that already had happened to him as well. All right. I'm glad they added all the shooting. <laughs> but the, the point of this is that the story isn't that interested in, is it all a dream? The story does not, ask that question. The story says, yes, he was a spy. Now you could definitely read it as that is his imagination or some extrapolation, but it doesn't play out like it does in this movie where the beats of his spy story match the vacation that he is being sold by recall the uh, memory implantation agency. Uh, I've already, I've kind of lost you. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Basically what I'm saying is he's got this story. It has the idea of implanting memories in it. And it has the idea that was he a spy? Wasn't he a spy? But basically nothing else. And you've get two screenwriters who read that story and say, we can blow this out. We can turn this into a crazy action adventure. And although Philip K. Dick is hugely prolific and an important figure and has served as the foundation for many great sci-fi movies, he is not what makes Total Recall great. The ideas are cool, but it's all about the tone and just the insanity. And from what I'm hearing from this 20-page short story, it seems like the very, very small seed was planted to make way for the movie. What's so interesting is that the ideas of the movie, particularly that is this a dream, is this not, feels like a very Philip K. Dick idea. It's just not an idea that was present that much in the original story. So it's truthful to him in a broad sense, but not specifically to that work. Yeah, and I also feel like it's in the movie, but do you think that the dream stuff is the basis for the full movie? I thought they were just kind of using it as a fun device for a couple cool scenes, but by the end of the movie, it was more about the liberation of the planet. Like, they sort of trick him a few times, and it's cool, but... At the end of the day, it's not like in the final scene. It's like, oh, maybe it's still all a dream. The like the second to last line of dialogue is, I just had a terrible thought. What if this is all a dream? And I she know. says, well, kiss me quick before you wake up. But what a, what a bummer it would be if he, if he woke up. You so, know that that's not going to happen. What you're saying is you are squarely on it was all real. Oh, yeah, totally. It was all That's real. funny because if you put a gun to my head, I would say it's all a dream. Oh, okay. I just think, like, he's so based in that world. Like, because it's kind of funny. I remember seeing it, and for some reason, I thought that his normal life was going to be in the normal world. And then he was going to discover all this Mars shit. But it's not. When you say the normal world, you mean, like, our world or Earth 1990. Yeah, exactly. I thought that's what it... Even my memory of seeing the movie when I was a kid, I was like, okay, he's like a normal guy, and then he finds out about Mars. And <laughs> he's a totally a... normal guy. He is a six-foot-three jacked construction worker married to Sharon Stone, friends with... Like a union boss I know. Fellow. I want to make some kind of joke about this guy's appearance. He looks like Peter Boyle, kind of, <laughs> but shorter. 
Danny DeVito's older cousin. Right. I thought that was the movie, but it wasn't. It's like, no, it's based in this world where Mars is a thing and it's like the future and there's all sorts of weird shit going on. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just thought that like since he's already in that world, it wasn't that big of a stretch to like, oh, yeah, they changed his memory and they did all this stuff to him. And now they're just trying to mess with him a little bit, making him think that it's all a dream, but it's not. Well, we'll certainly talk about it more because it is the linchpin of many of the movie's best scenes. But it's just interesting to to take a like an, an initial litmus test. You are on it's not a dream. I'm on it's a dream. Yeah, I don't know. I just I didn't really get a dream vibe from everything. Let's talk about the screenwriters, Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shissett. These are the guys that take this really short, thin story and flesh it out into what we see on the screen. And they're both really interesting figures, but I want to focus in on Dan O'Bannon because he is, I think, the most interesting of the two because he had this crazy career. He was a film student in USC. When he's there, he meets John Carpenter. They make a short called Dark Star. And as soon as they leave school, they expand that into a feature film. Carpenter directs it. Dan O'Bannon writes it, edits it, designs the sets and supervises the special effects. And that's a great little cult film, a fun sci-fi movie, and it launches both of these men's careers. After that, O'Bannon is hired to be the special effects supervisor on Jodorowsky's production of Dune. Oh, the famed. The famed one that never happened. Crazy adaptation of Dune. And its failure left him destitute. So that's when he reconnects with his old friend, Ronald Shissett, and they move in together and they start becoming a writing duo. They literally go to Philip K. Dick themselves and they buy the rights to this story because it was back at a time when you could just talk to an author and pay them $15,000 and buy the, the rights to write a screenplay based off their work. Uh, and they work on it for a while. And while they're workshopping it, they take a break and they write Alien. Oh, wow. Just a little break. You Just know. a little break. Right, Alien. To put this in time frame, a Alien comes out in 79. So they started writing Total Recall in the mid to late 70s. Right. And this thing just lists in development hell forever. Meanwhile, O'Bannon goes on to do the computer animations for the simulated trench run in Star Wars. When they're watching it on the screen, it's all the wireframes. The Pong. That's him. That's Dan O'Bannon. Wait, he did CGI? Yeah. As well as writing? Wow. Yeah. What a, he was all over the place. What a guy. And one other fun fact. In 2001, he was the filmmaker in residence at a little place called the Dodge School of Film and Media Arts at Chapman University. Oh, for those of you who don't know, that's where Ben and I met and fell in love. It's our alma mater. <laughs> anyway, he's a really cool guy. And he and, and she said, write this screenplay. And it is picked up by Dino De Laurentiis. He is the king of the classy knockoff. You have a successful movie. He's going to make it, but he's going to make it cheaper and hope that he can ride on the coattails of your success. He spends basically his entire career chasing Star Wars and Jaws. Those films change the landscape of filmmaking by being the first blockbusters. And he tries to replicate their success. 
over and over and over again. He makes Orca, a killer whale movie. <laughs> he makes sci-fi epics like David Lynch's Dune because he thinks it's going to follow in Star Wars' wake. So he picks up the script for this, uh, and his idea is that he wants Richard Dreyfus to star oh. as Quaid, which is just a really funny contrast to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, I could see it. I would be totally into that movie. He I love Richard up Dreyfus. a little bit. He grows a few inches. He could do it. He'd be a lot more believable as the construction worker at the beginning of the movie. It's true. De Laurentiis, he hires Bruce Beresford to direct it, who, uh, like his most famous movie is Driving Miss Daisy. An odd choice. Yep. And Beresford drops out, so he hires David Cronenberg. And Cronenberg is important for two reasons. One, he starts to reshape the project. He wants to do something that's more psychologically driven. And two, he adds Quato and the psychic mutants. Okay. Which are very Cronenbergian. Yeah, and kind of out of place in the rest of the movie, I think, but maybe not. I don't know. I, I kind of like, love them. Yeah, it's cool. Quato was cool. That was great. Quato is so good. Yeah, but very Cronenberg. I want to get... I want a Think Geek to make, like, a Quato shirt that just has, like, a puppet, like, a stuffed Quato. Oh, that'd be the cool. Front. Or just have it printed on the shirt. It, you could just look at it in the right direction, and it'll look 3D. <laughs> a lentacular Quato. Exactly. Cronenberg is eventually pushed off the project, and there's a really telling confrontation that he had with Shusset, which I think is really funny. They were talking about how Cronenberg was kept trying to make the film more psychologically driven. And Tristan says to him, you know what you've done? You've done the Philip K. Dick version of this movie. And Cronenberg says, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? And Tristan says, no, we want to do Raiders of the Lost Ark go to Mars. Wow. And that sounds like a really cynical Hollywood viewpoint. But I think that sense of fun is a big part of why this movie works. I guess so, but this also is not Raiders of the Lost Ark Goes to Mars at all. I don't think. But there's shades of that. I don't know, man. Alien civilizations and adventure and swashbuckling. Swashbuckling. <laughs> uh, but, okay, I, I see what you're saying, and I guess it's not like Tarkovsky, like people just talking in rooms, but this is also way more kind of deep than Raiders, in my opinion. I feel like this movie has a lot more to say than just having the fun times of Raiders, but we'll get into it. We'll get into that, I think, when we get to Paul Verhoeven, but there's so much more book reporting to do, Nat. Oh, boy. What do we got? De Laurentiis drops the project after Dune fails. David Lynch's Dune fails. It was a De Laurentiis film. He's like, I don't want to do another expensive sci-fi movie. And the rights are picked up thanks to a little somebody named Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, boy. Schwarzenegger had been interested in the project when it was under De Laurentiis, but he obviously wasn't the direction Dino wanted to go. Uh, wasn't the direction Cronenberg wanted to go. Cronenberg wanted William Hurt as the main character. Mm. So he sees the opportunity. He goes to our friends uh, Carol Co. from Mountains of the Moon, and he convinces them to put up the money for the project with him basically serving as the de facto producer. He is coming off of an incredible eighties where he had just tremendous, tremendous success. And he's able to leverage that into a pretty crazy deal. $10 million. That was a little bit low for him at the time. 15% of the gross 
but most importantly, veto power over the producer, director, screenplay, co-stars, and promotion. So he's the boss. He's the boss. He was the boss. This yeah. is a this is a Schwarzenegger film. That's so crazy. And we'll get into why that's crazy, but I I just love that he's willing to put himself out there on a movie like this. Despite the fact that it is a violent action movie with a sci-fi twist, very different from like his other films to date. Which I haven't seen a lot of those movies. I'm not a Schwarzenegger expert by any means. I've only seen a handful. In the 80s, you've got Commando, you've got Terminator, you've got Predator, where he plays unstoppable killing machines. Right. And in this movie, he's an unstoppable killing machine, but he doesn't know that. And he plays the first half of the movie with this humor and humility that does not match those earlier films. Yeah. This was him trying to like stretch his his skills a little bit. It does come right after Twins, so he's starting to branch into comedy. Uh, and it comes the same year as Kindergarten Cop, the second of his Ivan Reitman comedies. So it's at a period where he is trying to sort of expand his brand. Right. Going for that Oscar. <laughs> but I think the smartest thing that he does is that he puts his trust in talented directors. So even though he has all this power, he's not like Ed Edward Norton, where he's in the editing room, where he's rewriting the script. He hires talented people and he trusts them to do their work. And to that end, he brings on a new writer, Gary Goldman, who, by all accounts, basically leaves the first two acts alone, but completely redoes the third act. Mm, okay. And he brings on Paul Verhoeven, who, even though this is a Schwarzenegger film based off of, you know, the deal that was struck, this still feels like a Verhoeven film, first and foremost. Totally. Especially coming off RoboCop. Which which is why Schwarzenegger picked him. Uh, Schwarzenegger was an early possibility for RoboCop. One of the reasons he didn't get the role is because he was too big for the <laughs> costume. Wow. That's amazing. But obviously there was no ill will. Like after RoboCop came out, Schwarzenegger's like, we're going to work on something together. And when the rights for this finally came into his grasp, he's like, this is it. This is what we're doing. Beautiful. I love it when a plan comes together. And I think... It's awesome that Schwarzenegger would just choose the right people and not have... I'm sure he has an ego in other ways, but it's cool <laughs> that he's able to just be like, you got this, you got this. What's crazy is we already talked about this once on Hunt for Red October. He basically did the same thing with John McTiernan when he picked him to direct Predator. Right, that's right. What a boss. What a boss. Did you see him get kicked by that guy recently and he like just shrugged it off? I did not see that. What? Oh, yeah. Some guy tried to dropkick him at a convention or something, and he just kind of, like, walked away. Also, check out the video when he was running for governor of him getting an egg slammed on his coat. I have seen that. And he just, he just like, takes the coat off and puts it over his shoulder. I'm having a little crush on him he, right now. He, he's a philanderer, and he is <laughs> uh, not necessarily the best dude, but... Dude, a great leader, though. Let's not... <laughs> Let's not say that he's not a great leader. He ran the state of California. He's a boss. Mad respect. And uh, you know what? He was a great movie star. There you go. I don't know if he was a great actor, but he was a fucking amazing movie star. Oh, absolutely. Terminator, he's a good actor, right? I, I think he's a good actor in this, too. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. All right. Last, last chapter in the book report. We got to talk about Paul Verhoeven. We've danced around a little bit, but... Like we just said, 
This is really his movie. Even though he comes in last, he has such a specific vision. It's his DNA that imprints on the movie. Verhoeven's got this really, really interesting background that you have to talk about because it's so clear in the way that in his proclivities, in his obsessions, how it affected his movie making. Mm-hmm. He was Dutch when he was very young, like five years old. It's World War II. His family moves to The Hague uh, and live right next to a German rocket base in the Netherlands. And he says his street was repeatedly bombed by the Allies when they were trying to hit the base. So his memories of that time, as he says it, are of violence and burning houses and dead bodies on the street and continuous danger. But he remembers it as being this grand adventure. Oh, wow. So he has this really fucked up relationship with violence. Totally. Where to him, it is extreme and graphic, but it's not horrifying. To him. Like, yeah, he like revels (laughs) in its destructiveness. It's so funny that we're talking about this because I'm remembering our conversation about Cronenberg who witnessed a uh, circus performer fall out of a trapeze. Right. And die in front of him when he was five years old. So if you need some inspiration, just witness traumatic shit when you're five. And it, you'll it, yeah, if you want your kid to be the next great filmmaker. <laughs> uh, he was hugely prolific in the Netherlands. He was, uh, uh, the Seattle Times called him, he appeared to be the, the one-man Dutch movie industry. He just made movie after movie for them, eventually migrates his way to Hollywood where he makes a movie called Flesh and Blood that I haven't seen, which he follows up with RoboCop, which he follows up with this movie. And then I would you say that this RoboCop and Starship Troopers are like a trilogy in a way? I totally buy that. They're certainly like his satires, but even something like Basic Instinct has satirical elements as well. It just doesn't have the sci-fi. Yeah, those are all three of those are like sci-fi epics. Did you ever see L, the new one I did that not. he came out with? That was no. a fucked up movie. <laughs> the guy makes fucked up movies. <laughs> yeah, totally. Honestly, that's what's so amazing about Total Recall is that even though it is just as fucked up in many ways as his other films, I think it's also his most purely enjoyable movie. It's his most fun movie. I I might give that to RoboCop, but that might just be a personal taste thing. I don't know. I think RoboCop's vision of America gone to seed is too true to be fun. (laughs) I think all three of them are too true to be fun. Honestly, I don't think any of them are fun. I just think that RoboCop is the most fun because, I don't know, at least the people getting fucked over in RoboCop are mostly already terrible to begin with. Uh, in this, it's just total innocence being slaughtered for no reason. So that kind of disturbed me a little bit. Well, there's some non-innocent people who get slaughtered too. It's rough though. I gotta say. All right. You want to lead us off on the plot? Yeah. Okay. So movie begins pretty cool opening titles. It kind of reminded me of like a sci-fi novel cover. I thought that was cool. It's pulpy. It feels Pulpy. pulpy right off the bat. Totally. And it starts off with the vision of Mars with Quaid in his space suit running around with Laurie or not with Laurie with the other girl. Um, We don't really see Melina Melina. Um, And then he wakes up, but not before we get that. The first of the three 
horrific suffocating on Mars. That's right. His his visor breaks and we see his eyes bulging out a little bit, which is crazy. So I what I wanted to say about Arnold before is like I love that he's just willing to do this crazy stuff that makes him look terrible. All this like eyes popping out of his head and like shit going up his nose. Like I think it's cool that he's willing to just make himself look ridiculous. And even the stuff where he's just making weird noises. Right. Like, Is this where attractive. the Arnold Schwarzenegger comes from? I think like it that is. whole joke? Yeah, I think that, that this is a pretty strong part of that joke. Because, yeah, he's just kind of physically insane in this movie. And it's amazing that he allows that to happen. Most movie stars wouldn't do that, I don't think. Yeah. Even The Rock, I don't think, would allow himself to go to this level of just being so helpless in medical situations. I don't know when the best time to talk about this is, so I'm just going to bring it up now. All of the makeup effects and the animatronics and the puppets were done by this guy, Rob Bottin, who also did The Thing, uh, and he did the suit for RoboCop. Really prolific with, like, body augmentation stuff for movies. So this Arnold suffocating, that's like an animatronic. Uh, And it looks fantastic. Like, it doesn't look real, but it looks great. Yeah, I feel like this movie suffers from HD. I think that this would be best watched on VHS or something, or in a movie theater. I still, I have my special edition DVD. I haven't upgraded this one yet to Blu-ray, so I, I can't comment on that. Yeah, it looked I, great on DVD. Well, yeah, it's but I'm, I'm almost saying like any of these movies with the, with the practical effects, like I feel like it helps if, if it's a little bit lower quality to like sell it a little bit more. Because when you get to HD, you start seeing the things that you're not supposed to be seeing. I think it's part of the movie's charm though. And also 100% plays into this central question of whether or not it's real. The movie is almost like immune to criticism because if something seems fake or it doesn't register as genuine, be like, ah, but maybe it is fake. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love all this effect stuff and we can, get into the debate more, talk about it more at the end when we talk about 1990. But this movie to me feels like the pinnacle of pre CGI special effects. Yeah. I'd I'd agree with that. I think it's pretty amazing what they do in this one. Every discipline is represented and they are all used to such great effect. Yeah. I think these are the best animatronics that have ever been put in a movie, except for maybe the dinosaurs in Jurassic park. It's amazing what they do in this movie. And the fact that it's all practical is unreal. There is one CGI effect, but we'll talk about it when we get to it. So he is living his life. He's in this weird future where clearly things kind of suck. It's like there's weird memories that can be implanted in you. And there's a Martian colony and everyone just seems like kind of jaded and an asshole. It's not the... Back to the future, future. Uh, it is a much shittier, much closer to what we've got going these days than what we saw in Back to the Future 2. What I love about this is that something like Recall is clearly horrific and dystopian and has huge ramifications for the society in which it exists. But nobody in the movie has a problem with it. It's presented, I mean, some people are worried about its about it's uh, like the health risks. Right. But it's just like advertised on the TV. Everyone happily accepts 
their life where even their memories have been commoditized. And, you know, that's what we're dealing with in real life now. But I, I just thought that this, this hits, this was the beginning of my morbid fascination with all the really terrible things in this movie. I was like, Oh, this is hitting a little too close to home for me. Just like, I, I think we might be headed this way. Uh, and it's hard to watch. When I was watching the movie, I thought about what you said about how Miami Blues was sort of like uh, a Grand Theft Auto movie. And Paul Verhoeven also feels a little bit like a Grand Theft Auto filmmaker to me. Not in the way that he depicts violence and not in like the way his characters behave, but in the persistent layer of satire that is draped over the entire world. Totally. Yeah. Everything is a joke almost. It's all a comment on and almost like a making fun of specifically American society in the late 80s, early 90s. So what happens in this section? Other, it's, it's just sort of a tour of what's going on in his life. He's a construction worker. He's got this wife who kind of sucks. Yeah, we, we meet Sharon Stone playing Lori. Yep. This was like her first big breakout role. Yeah, and she does a great job. I... I think it cut to her looking suspicious one too many times. Like it kind of, it was so obvious that she's bad. Like there was no question about it, but it was kind of funny too. So it worked. What is this life that he hates so much where he has this massive, beautiful apartment full of technology. He has this beautiful wife who seems to genuinely care about him. And he's a construction worker, or maybe he's just a jackhammer model. I'm not sure exactly what his job is at the construction site. He knows it's not real, though. He's he's living the lie that every yuppie at that time was living, that this is all bullshit. This isn't what really makes you happy. You got to live out your dreams. That's why he's so, he's so wistful and is having nightmares of Mars, because he knows that he's not doing what he should be doing. What I love about Arnold in the opening of this movie... I think the best Arnold movies utilize his inhumanity. The fact that like he doesn't seem to be a real person. He doesn't look like a real person. He doesn't talk like a real person. He doesn't act like a real person. So whether that's Terminator, which casts him as the robot, and that works really well. Or if it's this, where as soon as we see him, again, I'm going to go back to the construction site because just that, crane shot of him on the jackhammer makes me laugh so much because it's so ridiculous yeah for me it was when he's like in bed with his wife and he's and just kind of having like shoulders and yeah, his biceps he's just having a normal conversation with her and you're just kind of like dude chill out like what what are you who are you we watch this and we're like this is not real this can't be real this does not exist so that when the movie presents us the alternative, we are so ready to buy it. Totally. It makes great use of him. I think the movie does a good job of the world building. I don't think it does as good of a job as RoboCop though. Like I think it's a little bit less seated within the movie. Like it's sure. really just the ads on TV and that's about it. But it, does a pretty good job of just making it seem really really dreary where they live it just seems awful and i know they filmed it in they filmed it on like the mexico city subway which i guess right had, it had just been built so it looked really futuristic and it just looks that, like sh that whole city looks terrible that crazy terrible city. 
set piece with all the stairs. Like, yeah. That's the subway station in Mexico City. Yeah. So it's cool. It, it, they did a good job of like finding a real life location and making it look like shit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't have anything to say about his coworker. I, I think it does a good job, though, of establishing how weird everything is going to be. I um, Is Paul Verhoeven the best filmmaker at using commercials in his movies? Because he does it in RoboCop and Starship Troopers as well. Yeah, he does a lot of commercials. I guess so. I can't. It's really, part of the satire. I can't off the top of my head think of other directors that prominently use fake commercials, but he definitely has made it a, a thing, a theme in his movies. The only other times you see it is usually as like a plot function, which in this movie, it's mostly plot oriented. But in RoboCop, it's just world building. Yeah. The I'd buy that for a dollar. It's just atmosphere. Yeah. And in Starship Troopers, it's all about the satire. The do you want to know more stuff? Well, and it's yeah. And it's like the propaganda aspect. in Starship Right. Troopers. But yeah, here it's a little bit not as important to the because the plot. ads, they set up Mars. They set yeah. up Cohagen and they set up recall. Exactly. Which is like our next scene. Our next sequence of scenes is Quaid going to recall. It's kind of funny how. All they have to do is just have him kind of be like, I feel weird. Like, I don't, I just need to go do something. Like he's having like this existential crisis and like not much else happens for the first 20 minutes of the movie. Cause there's nothing to happen. He just he has, has a get- conversation with Robert Costanzo playing again, playing Danny DeVito's taller cousin. Yeah. And that's it. And he's like, and his wife is being a bitch to him. And that's pretty much all you get. Uh, and he goes to recall and that's where the movie starts to really show where it's kind of going. I think the movie gets away with this because you're right. It is kind of a weirdly slow inert start where there isn't, we don't even know where the plot is going. We have this vague idea that maybe he wants to go to Mars. Yeah. But I think the movie gets away with it because him suffocating to death on Mars is such a visceral and frightening image that like the adrenaline of that carries us through the next 10 minutes without us questioning it. It's true. The matrix owes so much to this movie, at at least in terms of structure, even the matrix is exactly the same thing. It's like, there's a big action opening to get you hooked. And then we go for like a half hour of just like, you have no idea what's going on. It's, it really paved the way for that movie. It's kind of crazy. There's, also, like, lots of very specific visual and, and story elements. There's the red pill. Oh, yeah, the red pill. T- take That's a right. pill if you want to wake the up from the dream. The this bug out is in the Matrix. 100%. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff got taken. And, of course, the is this a dream, isn't this a dream stuff. Right. The Matrix feels like, you know, the, the version of this movie that takes itself more seriously. Let's talk about Recall. I love the recall salesman so much. He's an actor named Ray Baker. I honestly don't know him from any other movie, but this scene is so good of him selling the vacation. The chemistry between him and Arnold is fun. The, the, like the car salesman thing is great. The satire of somebody trying to sell you memories is so rich, but also the sci-fi ideas presented there are so interesting and intriguing but on top of that 
this is the scene that really gets to play with this central question of the movie where he lays out a bunch of stuff that's going to happen in the rest of the movie. Right. So it's the kind of scene that when you watch the movie again is even more rewarding. It's these scenes that jump out. Yeah, maybe I'll change my mind if I ever watch it again. Who knows? But yeah, that this whole section is cool. And then when they go into the chair to really do it and he just has the freak out, it's amazing. <sighs> Fuck. Him freaking the camera handheld rushing into the room towards him with him freaking out in the chair is one of those images that was burned in my brain. Yeah. And I love the secretary that's like, he's freaking out. And he's like, don't let the client leave. And I love that. It's just, there's, there's so much satire in any little tiny thing. It's just that one line of dialogue. Yeah. Don't let the client leave. I love it. So then shit really starts to pop off. We got Quaid going home, getting jumped, getting into the first bloodbath fight in this movie. The first of many. Right. He kills Robert Casanzo and his hit squad. Three other guys, four people. In a scene that feels very Jason Bourne. Another movie that owes a little bit to this one. A lot. in my Yeah. I think so many movies come out of this one. It's crazy. The thing I picked up on watching this time is this movie has the line clever girl in it. Three years before Jurassic Park. One of Jurassic Park's most iconic lines was in this movie. There you go. Jurassic Park owes everything to Total Recall. (laughs) I listened to some of the audio commentary for this movie, which I highly recommend for many reasons. It's Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And they're really funny together. And neither of them is particularly good at adding context to the movie. Arnold just likes to explain what's happening on the screen in the scene in recall. He just says, Oh, uh, this is a very good scene. This is the scene where the man convinces me to buy the dream. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, yeah, we're watching the movie. I know that's what's (laughs) happening. But how gleeful Verhoeven is about the violence is something to behold. Well, clearly he loves violence. Clearly, it's very important to him that this shit be really fucking violent. A little bit later when Arnie is is uh, escaping on the escalator and the, he uses the innocent bystander on a human shield, Verhoeven's just like, he, look, he's just meat. He's just meat. That's all he is. That's the point. And it's horrible. That is one of those. That was the first one where I was like, oh, this is going to be really rough. That was <laughs> up there. But for me, the ultimate is the poor bastard in RoboCop that gets blown away by the out of control robot. That is just so fucked. And this movie doesn't reach quite that level of carnage for me, but it's just, it makes sense. He loves, he loves this violence and it's, he's sort of using his evil powers for good in a way, because it does make you think about violence on a meta level beyond (laughs) just enjoying it in the movie. At least it made me think. I agree. And yet I fall in the camp where I also find it kind of impishly entertaining. It reaches a point where it's so unrealistic that I just kind of revel in it. I think, though, that's sort of what makes it worse for me in a way is that that you can revel in it. Because I feel like a lot of times when violence happens in real life, it's done not in a serious way. It's done in sort of a I'm just having fun 
way. Like the people committing violence are like just so out of their own mind and they're like doing they're like shooting someone in the head with a fucking smile on their face. And that's sort of the feel that I get from this movie. It's sure. like Oh, man. People are terrible, and they enjoy killing other people. It's... What do you think about Lori's turn? Lori's turn is great. That's one of the best things in the movie, that she becomes a baddie. And she's so much fun when she gets to be mean to Arnold. Yeah. Even yeah. more so in the later scene when she visits him on Mars. But in this scene, too, like, she's really fun. Yeah, and she's, like, still flirting with him. It's really great how she's just totally using everything she's got to, like, try to get a win. Look, when when you're married to Michael Ironside, but you get to pretend to be married to Arnold Schwarzenegger, aren't you going to make that last as long as you can? Maybe it was for selfish reasons. I think she was just trying to get the job done. Um, sure. I think she's, she's professional. Dedicated. But who knows? Who knows? Speaking of Richter, Michael Ironside, he shows up. He chases Arnie across the city. Uh, what do you think of Michael Ironside in this movie? As like kind of our, our he's the, the henchman of the main villain, but he's really our, our primary antagonist through most of the movie. I think he's good. I'm going to be doing a lot of comparing to Robocop just because the movies are so similar. He's no Boddicker. <laughs> he just doesn't have the panache that Boddicker has. He's but less colorful. Yeah, he's more of just a t- total piece of shit. And that's fine. I, God, I enjoy that. His voice, though. His voice is cool. Michael Ironside has one of the greatest voices of all time. And he just constantly looks so flustered and pissed off about what's happening. He never gets a win in this movie. He barely gets a win. What I think I like about uh, Richter is that, yeah, is that he is so put upon. Yeah, he's just middle management. And it's just... The, the problems keep piling up. There's just, it never ends for this poor guy. In in the later scene when Ronnie Cox, like, chews him out for not sticking to plan, I just love that dynamic so much. Michael Ironside thinks that he is the badass hunter, but he was picked because he was probably going to fail. Well, and this just goes all back to the satire that's prevalent through this whole movie. It's like, everyone in this society feels like, Either they don't belong in it, or they're just eating shit all day. Yeah, either you are Cohagen, or you're eating Cohagen shit. Yeah, it's just like real life. As we get older, we kind of slowly realize the world is rigged against everyone else, and it's just like you're you're kind of coming to that realization. Even if you're on the bad guy's side, who's fucking everyone over, you're still eating shit, and you still got to let your wife sleep with this guy. It's fucked up, <laughs> but that's just, you got to make a living. And this is what happens. There are three elements of this prolonged chase sequence that I want to talk about. I want to talk about the Johnny cab. Oh yeah. I love, love the Johnny cab. Maybe my favorite piece of world building in this entire movie. I think it just, it says so much about where earth is at and it does speak to this veneer of satire. And also the performance is so fun. It's Robert Picardo. Who's, you know, prolific character actor. Great. uh, That guy kind of performer and even the the the, uh, the animatronic the robot is based off of his look and he's great I love him and it's really creepy when he burns up later on what else the wet towel so Arnie's being tracked so he shows up at this hotel immediately gets a video call from a dude who says he knows him that they were buddies back in the agency the Mars intelligence agency uh, and he tells him to wrap a wet towel around his head. 
<laughs> and this is what I'm talking about, about Arnold being pretty humble about this role. He spends the next 10, 15 minutes of this action sequence with a towel wrapped around his head. He looks ridiculous. But it's, you kind of love it. Uh, you get that great exchange where the old woman tries to take the suitcase. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about that. That was so good. Yeah, it's <laughs> just so goofy. I think it's really smart, though, that he allows that kind of stuff to happen because he is such a weird a weird superhuman to begin with that like it does humanize him in a way that like he's not invulnerable. Maybe it's, I know that there's that whole thing of like John McClane and Die Hard kind of changed the dynamic a little bit from the Stallone, Arnold, beefy action Superman to the everyman. And I want, maybe this is Arnold's kind of like, take on that like trying to make himself a little yeah. more normal i don't know well or, or his thing is like i can't be normal but i can be absurd yeah and, and that's it, how i can be human it speaks to the fact that he started doing more and more comedies throughout the 90s totally the last element of the chase that i wanted to talk about and we already touched on a little bit but i i love it so much is the conversation he has with himself on the video screen hauser arnold is I think my favorite Arnold performance of all time. He's very smooth. But he's also so smarmy. Again, I can't believe Arnold lets himself be that grossly 80s yuppie. He's kind of charming the first time around. He's charming both times. I don't I wasn't grossed <laughs> out by him. I was just like, wow, what a bastard. Like <laughs> the first time I thought he was pretty cool, actually. He wasn't being a jerk or anything. He was just like, you'll get it done, right? <laughs> like that's the kind of guy you want on your side. But yeah, it's it's a great performance. And also his reaction to it is also great. So good. We get the bug removal. Another great animatronic from Rob Boutine. That was the one where I was like, wow, I can't believe Arnold lets himself look like this. It's kind of crazy. Just the choice to have this gigantic billiard ball be pulled out through a guy's nose. Yeah. It's Such awesome. an interesting choice. And then there's lots of violence and it's... A barrel of fun, just people getting shot, and we go to Mars. This is the thing that this movie does that wins me over, which is in the span of five minutes, we've had four or five things that just thrilled me and amused me to no end. We went straight from the Johnny Cab to the wet towel to the woman stealing the suitcase to the conversation with himself. And then we go to Mars, and the arrival on Mars is my single favorite scene in the entire movie. It's pretty spectacular. It's the culmination of everything that the movie does well. The action, the humor, the special effects, the weird vision of the future. Totally. Another movie that I wanted to shout out that I think owes a lot to this movie is Fifth Element. The whole, like, space travel, but it's still just, like, a fucking airport, like is exactly the same in fifth element and like the, just the crazy disguises with people inside of costumes. I, th- I think fifth element owes a lot to total recall, but it's an amazing set piece. The customs. Oh, you know what we never talked about though was the metal detector. True. Which is cool. That's the, the CGI sequence, the skeletons. That was the only CGI. We can quickly mention how that looks really cool. And also super, uh predictive of the actual future uh 
Uh, also, crazy expensive and took forever. Oh, shit. For like three seconds of screen time. But it looks good. It looks really unique and cool. And it's fun how they use it where we get to see him run through the screen and resolve into into himself. And dog skeletons are cool to see. So I'm just going to walk through this scene. We're following Richter. He's just arrived on Mars. He knows that Quaid is coming here and he wants to find him and get him. And as he walks through the customs lines, a figure stands out in our memory because she is a foot taller and a hundred pounds heavier than anyone else in the scene. <laughs> this actress, her name is Priscilla Allen. And I'm only being slightly hyperbolic when I think she should have been nominated for best supporting actress for this performance. <laughs> she walks up to the customs and right away, like we know the movie is so clever in the way that as soon as we see her, we're like, well, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger because no other human being <laughs> is that big. And she's got this great exchange. The guy asks him how long she's going to be there. She says two weeks. He asks her if she has any fruit or vegetables. She freaks out and says two weeks again. And then we get this incredible combination of performance and editing and special effects where she starts to freak out. And I think this is one of the things that makes this scene so great. The effect of the mask being removed is upsetting. It's frightening. It's not Mission Impossible. It's not like he pulls it off and it's super slick and cool. It's wrong. It feels like a violation. Well, because you're watching a face get mutilated. And it, it looks painful. Like the face is freaking out. She's scratching at herself. And we keep cutting back to Richter, who like looks back four or five times to see what's going on, which is such great punctuation. And then finally we get this again. It's an animatronic. It's a real thing. Yeah. And you can you can tell it looks it looks, it looks real. There's the, the arms lifting it up are real. Arnold's face is an animatronic face. And then the head is an animatronic that separates itself out and then pulls itself back together. I think it's one of the best special effects of all time. That wasn't his real face under there. It looked no, real. It, yeah. It's, it, if you watch it again, you'll see it. He's got kind of a weird expression. Okay. But I don't think there was room for his full head underneath all underneath the, the mechanics. Got it. Yeah. Just that visual of like the Venetian blinds element of the face is just the so way it like weird. unzips, but it's so cool. It's kind of satisfying in a way. I kind of want one to just like <laughs> fidget with at my house. And speaking of satisfying, then the scene ends with the great piece of punctuation. Arnold throws the head at the customs agent. The Priscilla Allen gets one last moment to shine where she says, get ready for a surprise. And then the head explodes. It's a perfect scene. I kind of enjoyed that they took the fun out of space travel. They don't show any spaceships or anything. They, they just make it seem like a fucking commercial flight to some other place. They don't show the ship. They show nothing. And we repeatedly hear how shitty Mars is. There's like fancy cruises to Venus and like maybe those ships are nice. And Saturn. Saturn is like S Saturn. They're like, you got to go to Saturn. But this is where the, the real satire comes into play. That this is just a third world country that has been exploited by America. Corporations. <laughs> and corporations. It's a banana republic. <laughs> And you really feel it immediately because they don't make much of an effort to make it seem like an alien planet. It just looks like a flavella. It's like there's one dome with a hotel and then there's a short tunnel and then there's another dome with a slum. And there's like rock walls. There's like red rock walls and that's it. There used to be this restaurant in New York called Mars 2112. And it was basically when 
people actually had money and they built this restaurant that was like a theme park near Times Square where you would walk in and it was like a space station and then you would ride a motion ride like the back to the future ride (laughs) and then you would walk out the other door and the restaurant was Mars and it was nuts. I want to eat at this restaurant. There were people in alien costumes walking around. The set of Total Recall Mars just looks exactly like Mars 2112 did. It's just like, it's just a bunch of fucking restaurant tables with some fake red rocks. But it, they really de-romanticize Mars to just really make it clear that like, yeah, it's Mars, but it fucking sucks. And it's basically just making a huge point about how corporations exploit powerless places and it's really fucked up and people get shot it's also a great warning against being an early adopter you know oh, yeah. in some ways you're a guinea pig your experience is there to pave the way for the, those that follow i suppose that could pan out in two different ways like you could get a leg up but yeah you're being exploited you you could get psychic powers but you'll also have a horrible mutated face. So it's just all sorts of fucked up. And it really does. If you really read into it, it is upsetting because you don't think about this kind of shit. And it's, it's terrifying. We still haven't really met Ronnie Cox at this point in the movie who plays Cohagen, who is the architect of all of this misery. And I wonder if that's maybe like a slight detriment. I think that the showdown with Cohagen at the top of the pyramid mine is probably the least effective part of the finale because Cohagen is just kind of a non-entity and there would have been a good opportunity here as we get to Mars to feel his presence a little bit more strongly I feel like he did it for me just because of like his relationship with Arnold that gets a little fleshed out that reveal is so good it carries a lot of weight yeah exactly so I again I'm gonna compare to Robocop I don't think he's as good as the big bad in Robocop and it's funny how also played by Roddy Cox. Oh, really? There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think he did it better that time. The The dynamic there is so similar. Him and then the one badass underling. It's so funny right. that that's the same actor. I didn't even realize. Yeah, so he's not Miguel Ferrer. He's not Miguel Ferrer, who's like the, the guy who wants to make RoboCop work. He's the Ed 209 guy. But yeah, he's he's got some scenes in the beginning. And yeah, he doesn't make a true impression until that reveal scene but then he, he does that real stuff. scene is great we'll get to it but before then we have to meet a couple other major characters we've got mel johnson jr an actor who i don't know and i can't think i've seen him of anything else uh but in this movie he plays benny the cab driver yep and he's just he's playing the comic relief basically but he's not even that funny he's he's he feels like a parody of comic relief yeah. Like he's like off a bad sitcom. And then when he becomes evil, he feels like a parody of the heel turn. He's just so needlessly over the top on every aspect. And he's one of the big parts that sort of speaks to this being a simulation because he feels like a character. He doesn't feel like a real person. Right. We go to the last resort. We meet Melina. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rachel Tacoden. And, um,. Dean Norris is in there too. As Tony, the like sort of the main mutant that we see with the folded face. Yeah. Doesn't have a lot to do in the movie other than have a folded face, but <laughs> good on him. Love him in Breaking yeah. Bad. Uh, but let's talk about Rachel. Did you recognize him or did you just I kind of knew, I kind of knew it was him okay. from like memes, but Rachel is like kind of not a, or Melina kind of not 
a real character. Maybe your dream thing has more weight than I thought. Because, yeah, she yeah. just kind of is there. She doesn't have much going on. She's just a freedom fighter. Her character, I feel like she's less fleshed out than um, Laurie, in a way. Yeah. I think part of that problem is that she cycles through so many different emotional states in these first few scenes and then almost immediately becomes like a... She's just a babe that's kind of there. This is meant to be a criticism of the film, so I hope this doesn't sound as offensive as it. I think it might. Do you know in the movie Rush Hour, when Jackie Chan is having the fight amongst all the Ming vases and he has to keep catching them? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. That's sort of what Rachel feels like in this movie. She's the Ming vases to Arnold's Jackie Chan. The damsel in distress. She's not like exactly a damsel in distress because she's kind of badass and does her own stuff. But he just has to like keep like moving her from one place to another to keep her safe. I think she's got a good attitude, though. When she comes in after uh, Lori's been killed and she's got a line like, That was your wife? Yeah, it looks mean, like a bitch. Yeah, it's it's all good she's one-liners, fun. but yeah, she's yeah. no Furiosa. Like, no, she's, she's just, no Furiosa. She's just there, and yeah, it's there's obviously the super famous scene of the tri-bubular mechanism, <laughs> which is legendary, but gets totally undercut later when that woman gets fucking shot in the back horrifying huh? yeah that's paul verhoeven being like oh you like that yeah exactly a killer so there you go it's it's just all it's deliciously fucked i want to say one more thing about this scene the last resort is the best tongue-in-cheek name for a shitty brothel and a vacation planet oh yeah all totally. time yeah i guess mars is a cool setting but like i was saying before it's a little earthy especially for such a big movie like it almost seemed like it was just like one street but maybe that's good maybe that just makes it shittier i think i guess that's it, the point it is kind of small honestly the whole movie feels a little small don't you agree it almost feels like the whole movie takes place on like three different sets and that's kind of it what's crazy is at the time this was depending on who you ask the most expensive film ever made that's insane to me because it really does look like they i mean it may maybe it was just all for the effects but you, you don't really get a lot of scope beyond maybe like 10 or 15 wide shots that seem kind of removed from the natural landscape of everything else. I totally agree with all this, but again, I think it sort of plays into the deliberate surreality or unreality of the situation. Totally. I, I think it it's good for the movie, but it's sort of an interesting creative choice that Mars doesn't feel big. It feels like there's only a couple pods and that's it. And it, I, I think it does help though, but I'm just sort of noticing that it just feels kind of small in a way. It's weird. Cause you know, I don't, did you watch the new Total Recall? The shit one? Oh yeah, I saw it. I have absolutely no memory of it. It is one of the most boring movies I've ever seen. <laughs> but I'm sure that they did insane CGI landscapes like they do in every movie. They now. don't go to Mars. Oh my God. Right. I mean, the book, the story never goes to Mars, so I guess that was their idea. But, like, the whole thing is built around an elevator that goes through the planet's core. All right, let's not waste any more time talking about that movie. <laughs> let's keep going through the plot. We have the really great, I think this was my favorite scene, the visit the doctor from scene? the doctor. Yeah, such a good scene. Standout performance, coming in, doing the one scene, getting shot in the head. Every, I feel like every actor dreams of having a role like that. So this is uh, Roy Brocksmith, who we'll see again in Arachnophobia. Okay. 
Can't wait. Yeah, and this this was definitely where the movie got its headiest. It got a little Inception-y. It happens in the recall scene, but this is really the sequence where Roy Brocksmith spells out everything that's going to happen. Yeah. And it all happens exactly the way he says. Right. But maybe he just was part of the plan that uh, What's-His-Face had, you know? Wait, you're looking at two yeah, different totally ways. Yeah, totally could have been. And you, it's totally conceivable to read him as the treacherous double agent. Like, he is sweating. He does sound like he's trying to trick Arnold. The performance is so well pitched in that respect. When Verhoeven talks about it, all he ever wanted to do was continue to make it cloudy. Okay. If he felt like the movie was going too far in one direction, he would put a scene in to push it back the other way. Like, this scene is basically there because we haven't been reminded that it might be a dream for a while. So he wants to put that back in the mix just so you can read it either way. I guess because he never wakes up at the end, I'm just like, nah, it wasn't a dream. It was real. We're going to talk about (laughs) this. But when we get to the end, because there is one thing Verhoeven does that's really interesting. Okay. And then let's talk about Laurie getting shot in the head. There's some good Arnold one-liners in this. Yeah, totally. They're no, uh, hey, Bennett, let off some steam. Yeah, this one's good, though. Good. Consider a divorce is pretty good. That might so be a top So supposedly, five. originally, he would say that before the shooting. He'd say, consider this a divorce, and then shoot her. Oh. But they thought that was too cold-blooded. Hey, man, it's total recall. Just do it. <laughs> I know, right? I'm already in horrified. This movie? Yeah. Then there's a lot of running around. A lot of rebels. A lot of mishaps with i can't remember exactly what the turn of events was but melina comes up to the room they have to escape richter uh and they wind up back in venusville at the last resort where they get brought into the secret tunnels i wanted to shout out richter's right hand man i liked that guy a lot and i liked his look that guy with the glasses and the super close cropped buzz cut who has the standout moment when richter's about to shoot at them and he's like, don't do it. You'll you'll puncture the glass. Like, I I like that guy a lot. He's also great in the sequence with the tracker where he keeps telling them where to shoot. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though there's clearly nobody there. Yeah. That guy's a musician. Michael Champion. Just a great look. I love, I love uh, henchmen with good looks that are just like, you could be them as a Halloween costume and people would know who that is. Um, Robocop also has it. I feel like this movie has a lot of great supporting performances a lot of fun character actors some well-known some not just really owning their own little part of the movie uh to that end at the end of this escape sequence we meet quato 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 is played by an actor named marshall bell he does george the the guy who houses quato and he also does the voice of quato let me talk about this for a second what an interesting direction to like, so you're basically in the star Wars rebels base with the random handsome military officers that are like, here's what we're going to have to do. Blah, 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 this, this, this. And then they're like, okay, we're going to go take you to meet the leader. And instead of the leader being like Yoda, which you sort of expect, you're like, okay, it's going to be some little guy. It's literally a guy stuck to the handsome-faced guy who had no character before that. You you don't expect that guy to have any substance. You're just like, oh, this is the fucking lieutenant who just, like, tells you where which room to go to. But then, no, he's the, he's the, the house of the Yoda? 
It's just a weird creative decision that you kind of love. It brings up so many thoughts about what that guy's life must be like, what his relationship to Quato is like, because they're clearly distinct personalities. Yeah, and it's just also funny that he's this clean-cut, every lieutenant. Like, yeah. you don't expect that at all. Imagine if they did that in Star Wars with, <laughs> with like, the lady that sits at the computer at the Rebel base. Mon like, Mothma just opens her shirt yeah. and there's, like, a deformed baby there. Yeah, those those random radar operators or whatever that are at the control base all of a sudden have become this ridiculous, crazy character. I, I just thought it was... Such an inspired decision. This puppet is so Cronenberg. It looks like a tumor that has grown a face. Yeah, but even... I'm going to keep harping on this. The puppet isn't what freaks me out. It's that that puppet is on that specific guy. (laughs) Like, he's like Mitt Romney. Like, (laughs) why is he on that guy? Of all people. That guy, he got deformed. He got mutated by the bad oxygen. He's just like a senator quato didn't choose to be on that guy i know it's just i can't believe it's that guy <laughs> of all people anyway uh <laughs> this scene works it i think this scene could easily not work it could feel trite or contrived but it works because one quato is so visually arresting two because the quato performance is so strange the way he whispers the puppet taking Arnold's hands. It's very uh, hard to notice that the scene kind of feels like a a release valve. And two is the way that the scene functions in the pacing of the movie, where we have had nonstop action since the end of the doctor scene with chases and killings and all kinds of stuff happening. It's been a lot of plot. You literally said you could not remember the exact sequence of events because it's just been bam, 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 bam. Right. And then the movie gives us this one breath of air right here before it gears back up for the final act in the finale. Which never lets up again. And it's cool. It's uh, There's revelations and then it all ends in terrible, terrible violence. Once again, headshot to the little baby creature sticking out of Mitt Romney. Like, it's insane it's, how di- how disgusting it is. This is the, other than the, the Scrooge of the Neck, which we're about to get to, this is the other moment of violence that gets to me. Yeah. Because the puppet is so infant Yeah, it looks like a baby. It looks like a baby. And that we're in close-up. Verhoeven puts it in a close-up as we see the head, like, explode. Just a little chunk headshot. gets taken out of that. It's so fucked. Um... Sorry for all the cursing in this, but it is total recall. Um, hey, I, I, I got the uh, I got the explicit tag on our podcast. Okay, okay. Hopefully you you all appreciate our potty mouths. Um, Can we talk about something? Speaking of this, <laughs> sure. Doesn't it seem crazy that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the biggest movie star in the world when all of his movies were R rated? You couldn't do that today. Because people used to like going to movies way more and they would go see an R-rated movie and they didn't have video games. Like, this was literally the pinnacle. Dude, if you want right now, you personally can go headshot people. But this was way before... Let me re-record that. Okay. what? No, keep this in because I have no idea where you're going. I'm talking about, like, the fact that people crave violent content and Arnold Schwarzenegger was the king of violent content 
in the <laughs> 80s and the 90s. He was the guy that is going to shoot dozens of people if you go to see his movies in graphic, bloody, R-rated glory. And now I can boot up Doom Eternal and exactly. do all that shooting myself. Exactly. Call of Duty Warzone. Exactly. I think that now there's so many more outlets for <laughs> explicit violence, both on fucking live leak uh, and on video games and on YouTube compilations of the hundred greatest fucking headshots. But in the 80s, you're either reading some heavy metal magazine or listening to heavy metal music or you're going to see an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. People have had bloodlust and have blood. <laughs> People have bloodlust and Arnold was the king. I think it's also a testament to his branding because he was popular across demographics, including with people who would not have seen his movies. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's he's an amazing human being. Your number one comparison is going to be The Rock, but it's... Right. The Rock the, is a good comparison. But The Rock is so... He's so corporate compared to Arnold. And he would not have... If he only made R-rated movies, he would have nowhere near the career he has today. Exactly. But it's also that the the times have changed a little bit. Like, I guess this is, this is right after PG-13 has sort of become a thing, but... At this point in 1990, I think there's still a pretty big distinction where you can still make a hit out of an R-rated movie, like sure. a mega hit that'll be in the top 10. It was a totally different time, and it's amazing that he was able to be this insane movie star with all these R-rated movies and then become the governor of California. Let us not forget. All right, let's get back to the movie Yeah, because <laughs> we're at another one of the great scenes of the film. Again, this movie just is great scene after great scene after great scene. Benny double crosses them. Everyone gets captured. We go back to Cohagen's office and the plot twist of the movie is revealed. Turns out Arnie didn't have his memory wiped by the bad guys because he was a turncoat. He had his memory wiped by the bad guys because he was one of the bad guys and he wanted to hide his true intentions. He wanted to trick himself. There's so many layers to this. It's so good. I just love I, I'm looking at it from the satire point of view. That it's like, we are all tricking ourselves in a way, are we not? <laughs> Aren't we all fucking ourselves over every single day? I mean, I don't know. It's amazing. Are, don't I we mean, think we're such virtuous people, but we're actually not? Present Arnold choosing to be Quaid is really not that different from Hauser choosing to create Quaid. Yeah. It's an act of willful self-creation. Yeah, it's kind of funny that he chooses to be a new person entirely, but he's, doing, he's making the right decision. Also... Again, Arnie on the screen. Hauser, so good in the scene. Oh, yeah. When, when, it, like, when it pans out and he's like he's like buddies with... Um, with, with Ronnie Cox. With Ronnie Cox. That's another Verhoeven uh, staple, at least between this and RoboCop. He loves bad guys pre-recording <laughs> themselves, talking to other people or to themselves and being just such assholes which I'm trying to even think of that happening in other movies. The only movie I can think of is Crank, where it's like, <laughs> hey, Chelios, I poisoned you, bitch. <laughs> we need I more bad guys filming videos. Except this is like one of the few movies where it makes sense because he would need to explain to himself what's happening. Right, that's true. Because he's hoping that he will like kind of snap to it and accept the fact that, hey, now I get to be best friends with Ronnie Cox. I'm and the winner. Go to these sweet parties. 
Fuck that. No. This is also where we get... We're also... One of the things this movie does quite well is it establishes the stakes of the third act a few scenes before we actually get there. Well, with the air? The air shut off in Venusville. Yeah. Happens before all of this goes down. Right. So that it doesn't feel like something new and manufactured to create tension at the end of the movie. It's just something that came up organically in the plotting of the film. Yeah, totally. And and also his reaction, Ronnie Cox being like, fuck him, um, feels right in character. He's like, he's making them pay for what they've done. So now we get our escape from Cohagen and the screw scene that I keep talking about. Well, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to turn him back to himself. Turn him back to Hauser, turn Melina into a docile housemate. Again, just so messed up. There is something I'm, I keep saying it, but like, I do think it's really visceral and really ugly. And it just feels like Verhoeven is really bringing a mirror to. He's really tapped into the worst parts of humanity. <laughs> the worst parts and of American society. Let's be honest. He doesn't strictly judge them. He's not being moralistic about it. He's like, fine, if this is what you want to be, revel in it. Right. But yeah, he's he's saying like, okay, here's a guy who... His dream is to be this successful executive that fucks people over and has a docile bimbo wife that just follows him around. Like, this is what the dream is? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's awful. It's like back in Red October when when Sam What's his face was like, I just want Samuel. a I just want a truck and a wife that makes me a casserole every day. Like it's so Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, well, Arnold takes his bloody revenge on Cohagen's scheme. And one of the most brutal sequences of the film, when he breaks himself out of the chair, also just a great Arnold sequence that you need someone like Arnold to pull off where he rips the restraint off the chair. Right. Yeah. And then we get a little bit of a chase scene. Benny shows up again, inexplicably how he found them. We have no idea. We get another great one-liner. Screw you. Screw Benny's you. inside a giant drill. Did and Arnold, Arnold have kills him with like drill. A, a pun generator? Because that's across <laughs> that's a really all good his, question. All I don't movies. know. You can watch the montage of it on YouTube of like every movie he's got it. I think it more became a thing that if a screenwriter knew they were writing an Arnold film, they wanted to get their one-liners in. That was their chance. I mean, I guess other action movies have it. Maybe it's just Arnold does it in a way that just makes it seem special. I don't know. But if you watch, there's like a t famous 10 minute YouTube compilation of all of them in a row. And it's kind of amazing. This movie contributes several good ones. Yeah. We haven't even gotten to my favorite yet. And yeah, I mean, Benny's betrayal is, is horrible, but you know, had to be done. And he's just like, I don't even have any kids. Ah! <laughs> Piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> and then, it's just sort of a whirlwind through the mine. Richter gets off. We get the hologram fight. Which is cool. That's cool. I like that, A, he hasn't used the hologram before now. It gets set up when he gets the suitcase. Well, you know he's going to Right at the beginning it. of the movie. You know he's going to use it. And then the movie doesn't touch it again until right here. And then when it does use it, it uses it a lot and in different ways. Yeah, totally. You, I love how proud Arnold is of it. He's like a child. <laughs> He's like, you think that's me? It's not me, huh? Or it is me, huh? Like, yeah. 
The time, the time when time, it's actually him pretending to be yeah, the hologram is the great. best. Even the first time he sees it, he's looking at it like a child. When he's back on Earth, he's like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, and that's great. But again, it's just like reveling in violence. He's like, he loves that he's shooting these guys. And then, yeah, we get Richter's death, which is horrible when uh, they're fighting on the elevator and Richter's arms get cut off by the wall. And while holding the severed arms, Arnie says, see you at the party, Richter. Great. <laughs> it's Fuck him. so over the top. And then, yeah, it's just the final scene. Cohagen says he's going to, if he presses the button, it's going to kill everybody. It doesn't. We got the airlock. It makes oxygen. Arnie defeats the bad guy. He saves Venusville. He saves Mars. And he makes it look like um, Earth all of a sudden. When he was at recall, they called the simulation Blue Sky on Mars. And what do we have but blue skies on Mars at the end of the movie? Okay. And then what does Verhoeven do? He fades to white. Mm. Son of a bitch fades to white, not black. Okay. Ah. You know, you maybe said that I... we never see him wake up, but it fades to white. It's like he's opening his eyes to a bright light. All right. Maybe I wasn't reading between the lines. I, I need to watch again. I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here because Verhoeven is really proud of his choice to make it fade to white. On the special features of the movie, he's like, oh, what did I do? I faded to white. What did mm. I do? So even he doesn't know. So you're allowed to think whatever you want, I suppose. But yeah, is there anything specific you wanted to get into in those last 10 minutes? I mean, obviously, Ronnie Cox getting mutated is insane. And even Arnold and um, Rachel, what's her name? Yeah, uh, yeah. Rachel Tacoden. Rachel Tacoden, yeah. The, them getting mutilated is kind of crazy. Lucky it that goes they didn't on die. so long, too. Them suffocating. It's such an upsetting animatronic, and Verhoeven just stays on it. Yeah. But yeah, that's the movie. That is the movie. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about special effects. I just want to call out, like, all of the different techniques that this movie employs that just a few years later would all be CGI. We've got the animatronics. We talked about that. We have the prosthetics and the makeup that Rob Boutine did. There's matte paintings. There's stop motion. There's green screen compositing. You've got pyrotechnics and explosions. There's even CGI. Like, it's every discipline. This is the complete package. Yeah. One of the most impressive cumulative special effects projects i've ever seen even like the set design and stuff it all sells a pretty cool amazing picture you know it's like the introduction of color you know when uh people like we were just learning how to shoot on black and white and we we lost that it's the same thing with these special effects even teenage mutant ninja turtles which i didn't love the animatronic turtles in that was still you know an art form that was so close to reaching a pinnacle but then would be made completely irrelevant by a passing time. It's maybe that's just the curse of all technology that while you master it, they're developing new stuff and then you got to master that. And it just never ends. I don't know. Never ends. I wanted to call out the score. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith score. Maybe my favorite Jerry Goldsmith score. It's really great. It's a good one. Totally. Particularly Um, the, the, the way it swells with the ending of this movie makes me feel so satisfied. Yeah. It's got really good swelling. <laughs> the The movie has just been <laughs> accelerating and accelerating. The last 15 minutes are white knuckle. And then we get that really cheesy, but perfectly pitched closing bit of dialogue. What if this has been all a dream? 
kiss me quick before you wake up and then it fades to white and we get this but um bum bum and it's so good very hitchcock ending in my opinion just like get a, out fast yeah get out real fast kiss bye okay great the end and it was originally rated x yeah well i want to talk about the legacy of the movie and the release of this film is really interesting first and foremost because it when they send to the mpaa it gets rated x because somehow the violence was even more extreme in the original version of this film. Mm. But interestingly, when I was reading about this, Arnold Schwarzenegger thinks that Verhoeven sent like a dummy version to the MPA specifically that to get them to rate it X so oh. that they would think his preferred cut was less severe. That's smart. That's a great strategy. You hear about that kind of thing all the time. Yeah. We do that in editing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> give them something you know they won't like so that when you give them the thing you like they're more prepared or for give it. them two options and one is clearly worse but they'll just be like yeah. we like option b and you're like great <laughs> oh great great uh yeah um that's a good good one fair if this movie had been rated x i it would have been a dismal failure oh yeah nobody could have seen it no theater would have shown it it would have been a disaster they would have been showing Considering- it in porno theaters how expensive it was. The second thing that I think is really interesting about the release of this film is they talk on the special features, which are great, by the way, that the, this was like an early special edition DVD and it's got really great documentaries and supplements. One of the things they talk about is how, when they did testing just a few months out for the movie, and this was a June 1st film. So this was a big summer release meant to be the tent pole uh, uh, Ford studio, the market awareness was really low. It's at like 45%, which is disastrous. People didn't know what the movie was or that it was coming out. And I watched the theatrical trailer for this movie and it's bad. Okay. It's a, a, a senseless montage of action with no context. Even having seen the movie, it's hard to track and understand what it's selling you other than just Arnold Schwarzenegger and lots and lots of special effects and action. So they devised this huge marketing push spend a bunch of money to try and increase awareness. And you out of this, you get these amazing TV spots and this great ad campaign that's all focused around the idea that someone has stolen your mind. Okay. That's what they sell the movie on. It doesn't even show that much footage of the movie. The first TV spot is just Arnold's face and Mars. It pans over his Arnold face to Mars. And there's a voiceover that's saying, what if someone had stolen your mind? And it does a great job of just narrowing you in, focusing you. And it was a huge success. The marketing campaign led to a massive opening weekend, which then sets a precedent for the way modern release strategies work, where you do a a couple trailers out early, and then you do a huge push a couple months before, and you try and rake it all in the opening weekend. Yeah. There's a whole strategy behind those tv spots now too or i mean it's obviously changing now because of like people aren't watching tv as much but like it's like okay we're gonna lead with the story spots then we're gonna go into like the character spots then it's gonna be the critic reviews then it's gonna be and like if you look through like the entire marketing of like a guardians of the galaxy or something like that there's like a very clear progression where like by the end of it they're just doing anything that's different, <laughs> but it is TV spots are kind of the king of the, the secret king of trailers, at least for and the that last progression, years. that progression. Exactly. So Nat 
in some ways you owe your job to Total, Total Recall. Recall. Yeah. For setting the standard. There you go. Thank you, Arnold. Great man. <laughs> I just I, I want to say that I don't believe Arnold Schwarzenegger is a great man. Just let's have that on the record. Come on. I think he's been partially canceled. I don't want to be. You guys, that's Nat's opinion. That's not my opinion. June 1st, 1990, on a budget of somewhere between 50 or $60 million. Again, one of the most expensive movies ever made. It's hard to pin down the budget because there was this huge marketing push at the end, which probably increased costs a significant amount. The movie makes $25.5 million opening weekend, uh, which is solid, great, perfectly good for that time of year. Um, not the numbers that we're used to seeing today, but a, a great solid opening for the summer. It goes on to gross $119 million domestic, 261 million worldwide. A, a solid, solid hit. Pretty good for an R-rated film. Uh, what do you think? Ranking game. Where did this land on the list for all-time domestic gross uh, 1990. This has got to be in the top 10. I'm going to go with number five. Number five. It was number seven. Number seven. Damn. The closest you've been so far. You've been within one before. But two is not bad. You were close. The uh, I have to say, if you look at the ranking list, the top 10 is kind of depressing. I think that Total Recall is... Well, it's not even an original movie. I was going to say it's the, the highest grossing original film, but it's not even original. So uh, I guess Pretty Woman. No, Pretty Woman beats it. Uh, the movie wins an Oscar. It wins uh, a special Academy Award for special effects. There wasn't a special effects award that year. Wow. So this and Red October were cleaning up the uh, technical awards, huh? Interestingly, though, this movie loses makeup to Dick Tracy. Well, Dick Tracy, we'll talk about that next we'll week. We'll talk about that next week, but this has some pretty incredible special effects makeup. I don't know about that one. I'm riding with Dick. Um, uh, there were talks for a sequel for a long time. They were going to make the sequel an adaptation of Minority Report. Quaid would have become a cop on Mars, and the mutants would have taken the place of the precogs. Oh, okay. It's actually a pretty solid pitch for a sequel, I feel like. But instead, Minority Report goes to Spielberg and DreamWorks. I'm glad Minority Report's its own thing. Another movie that owes a lot to this. And then there's a there's a good old home video release, 1990. I just, I, I wanted to talk about it because I think it's pretty interesting. First and foremost, this movie is a turning point in the way DVDs are produced when the special edition DVD comes out. They paid Arnold Schwarzenegger reportedly $75,000 to do the commentary, which was four or five times the total budget most home video releases would have for their supplemental features. Did that was just for everyone Arnold. to do commentaries. That's interesting. Well, it, this is the thing that changes the way special features are made before that you wouldn't get paid or you'd be paid a pittance. But after Arnold held out, now, if you wanted a big star for your commentary, you'd have to shell out a lot of money. Wait, when did he rec when did he record it? Uh, I think it came out in two thousand one. The special features. Okay. The the DVD. So it was it wasn't like hot off the movie coming out. Oh no 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 no! I mean, there wasn't even a DVD. There was no commentary for the VHS. Right. So what the reason I want to mention this is because it's thanks to the home video release of Total Recall that we got this great heyday of special edition DVDs. Mm. They yeah. owe a lot to 
the precedent that was set here, but it's also sort of a double-edged sword at the beginning of the end because it becomes unprofitable to produce these features. They're just too expensive. They don't make enough of a difference. Mm. But those are probably so valuable just for like film in general that those exist. I think they're, I mean, I think the special features on Lord of the Rings taught me more than what I led that what taught me more than I ever learned in film school. Yeah. About making a movie. No, it's amazing stuff. Should we get into themes? 90s themes? Yeah. What do you think? I think that this movie is a real dark mirror to a lot of things that were going on in the 90s. And I've talked about a lot of it already in this podcast, but just like the life that he's living versus the life that he wants and the utter ruthlessness of the capitalists that are just exploiting people. I think people were were sort of slowly coming out of the 80s, waking up and realizing that like they were being kind of shitty to the rest of the world. It's totally fitting in with the death of Reaganism stuff that we talked about, about the evil corporate interests and evil moneyed interests that we talked about and things like as early as Pretty Woman. Yeah. We've got conspiracies in the halls of power, sort of like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And also just, I guess this movie's looking through the future and just how, how potentially messed up the future could be. And here we are 30 years later. It's certainly a very cynical view of, of the future yeah. via 1990. Yeah. We've also got, you know, special effects and the way those are changing. This is very much like Back to the Future Part 3 and Hunt for Red October and the way that it starts to incorporate CGI elements, but is still mainly reliant on older techniques. Yep. Another thing I wanted to bring up that this film exemplifies really well, I think, is the change that Hollywood is undergoing in the way that it treats movie stars. In the 80s, oftentimes the star was the movie. And this movie is sold on Schwarzenegger. Right. This is a Schwarzenegger film. You'd see it because you liked Arnold Schwarzenegger. But the movie kind of overwhelms him. Its ideas, its special effects, its production design, its plot, ultimately kind of consume him in a way that he isn't in some of his earlier films. Yeah, it's not just the Arnold Schwarzenegger show. There's a lot more going on. And as much as I love Arnold in it, it feels like he's just a role player in it. And I think that presages where we are today, where the movie star is no longer the movie. It's the property. So this movie is, is really well positioned to see that transition sort of in action as you're watching it. Totally. Totally. I agree. I agree. Cool. Well, that was Total Recall. Is there anything else we need to say for Total Recall? Definitely check it out. This one is another contender for the top of my rankings for the year, the cream of the crop. I'm really excited to do that. But yeah, this one is, it's just, it's so fun yeah. and so clever and so entertaining in so many ways. Definitely worth revisiting. If you haven't seen it in a while, or if you only saw it when you were 11, see it again. Well, let's give us some plugs. Yo, what do we got? Yeah. BTTM pod on Instagram, Twitter, Gmail, reach out to us. Let us know that you're listening. Uh, thanks to Andy Gagnon for our music. Hopefully we'll have a little bit more of that soon. I love that theme song so much. And uh, yeah. For Back to the Movies, this is Nat. And this is Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go Back to the Movies. Yeah. Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy.